that America today, America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, for the families who mourn. This nation stands with the good people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! And soon the rest of the world will hear from us, all of us. Did the world hear from us? Do they fear us? Did we learn the lessons of 9-11 18 years later? Stay tuned on this special anniversary show of 9-11 with Michelle Malkin. Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And yes, this is the Conservative Review podcast. Daniel Horowitz in the house for this very special episode of the Conservative Review podcast on September 11th, 2019. I cannot believe it's been 18 years. Oh my gosh. I mean, I've had three kids born since then. I've gotten married. We've all grown older. And it seems like it's just yesterday. Those of us who lived through it could remember vividly every detail. And, you know, I think it's really worth while for all of us to pause from everything we're doing. Normally, I like speaking about straight up, you know, policy, what we're doing, what we need to do as conservatives. But I think it's worthwhile for everyone to reflect on what happened. Um, certainly the heroism the several hundred New York firefighters who died in the Twin Towers that facilitated an orderly evacuation that's often forgotten that, you know, thousands more would have been killed. I remember thinking at the time, my first thought was 15,000 killed, 20,000. And as horrific as it was, it was just under 3,000 total casualties from that day, which certainly was, was the most ever. Uh, surpassing the casualty toll from Pearl Harbor. But still, I think because of God's providence, there's tons of stories, Miracle on Stairwell B. It's a great documentary, great book out there. And I think it's something we have to make sure that none of us forget the heroism of Flight 93. We, we, We could talk all week about this. But the main question is, What sort of lesson do we take out of 9-11? What are we not trying to forget? Rather than hear me talk all day, I decided to put out a very long essay today on how we didn't learn the right lessons of 9-11 on immigration. I I want you guys to hear from Michelle Malkin. No better voice, I think, to hear from than Michelle. Originally, I was planning on having Michelle on Friday, uh, just because that's that's what fit into her schedule. And we're going to talk about her new book, Open Borders, Inc. And then I said to myself, if you think about it, 9-11 was all about open borders. And the problems that existed then 
reverberate as much today as they did before 9-11. Yes, we have, thank God, successfully prevented an attack of that scale. But the terrorists have moved on to civilization jihad, to these singular, low-scaled attacks, but cumulatively, they build up between immigration, terror finance on our own shores, the Muslim Brotherhood networks that we refuse to go after during their genesis stage that really started with the, the death, the, the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahana in 1990, and then the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, a lot of those cells, they were in America, and we did nothing about it. We have cells in America today that we refuse to do anything about. We have brought in 2.2 million people, by my count, from 47 predominant predominantly Muslim countries since 9-11 through the first quarter of 2018. You could see here the chart that we have here listing country by country. These are the number of green cards issued. We've issued roughly the same number of student visas and other long-term visas, roughly 150 to 175,000 Muslim green cards a year to, to predominantly Muslim countries, roughly the same amount of student visas. And we forget, we forget what happened on 9-11. The other comparable day that will live on in infamy, <clears throat> December 7th, 1941, the Japanese military attacked Pearl Harbor. That was a military attack. Tremendous amount of military assets went into that. And we needed to build up a tremendous amount of military assets to defeat that. And we did it with full resolve full clarity of mission, no holds barred, and no political correctness. On September 11, 2001, we were attacked in a very different way. It was through our immigration system. It was through people that should never have been let in the country that had nothing but box cutters and who got help and coordination from people who should have been on our radar already in America like Anwar Al-Awlaki, who bought plane tickets on and off for, for some of the hijackers. Not only were these people not arrested on, on terrorism charges throughout the 90s when we should have been dealing with this, these people were viewed as Muslim community leaders by our government. Anwar Al-Awlaki, even after 9-11, this man was holding chaplaincies and prayer uh, events with Muslim staffers on Capitol Hill. This man in April 2002, just months after his disciples flew planes into the World Trade into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, this guy was at a luncheon invited by our government in the Pentagon. It's immigration. It's the Muslim Brotherhood networks we allow to fester in this country. It's the terror finance, as Derek Maltz, our friend from uh, SOD, you got to follow him on Twitter, former DA SOD head, Special Operations Division. The, the nexus between immigration, criminal activity like drugs and contraband, and terror finance. That's what it is. Immigration, terror finance, Muslim Brotherhood networks in America, Homeland Security, making the right alliances and going after Turkey, 
Iran and Qatar, those funding terrorism with soft power, tools of statecraft, and then preserving our military for strike and maneuver, not hold and build and nation build and own Islamic civil war dumpster fires. We have done the exact opposite the last 18 years of what we should have been doing. We go overseas, fight their wars, and then bring them in record numbers of immigration to our shores. The problem is here at home. The front lines are our immigration system. It's the subversion happening in America, the civilization jihad. That's unfortunately at this stage that we already let in. It's an FBI issue. It's a Homeland Security issue. It's not a military issue. But yet we, we've had 5,000 plus soldiers die, 50,000 or so injured, trillions of dollars spent on Afghanistan and Iraq, which actually weakened our position and has nothing to do with it. Yes, we, should, we needed something to bomb and, and retaliate in the aftermath of 9-11 but we should never have owned them that like it's incumbent upon us to get caught, have our heads chopped off, trying to build their own territory for them. No, we've talked about this a lot. And I know I've mentioned a lot of very heavy issues. I want to build on this in the coming days. But before I go on, I want you to hear from Michelle Malkin. So Michelle Malkin does not need an introduction to this audience. Uh, you guys have known her for three decades from her writings, from her TV appearances. One of the few steady Eddie hands in this movement that is always relentlessly focused on the issues and on what matters. There is no better day to have her on than today. 9-11, um, as we mentioned, was all at its foundational level about open borders. Remember, we have a lot of problems in this country, but even on its worst day, we would prefer this country to all of the vices that we see in the world, whether it's poverty, whether it's crime, whether it's gangs, whether it's drugs, whether it's health concerns, and yes, whether it's terrorism. When you have an open border, you are truncating that boundary, that safe space for America from the rest of the vices of the world, and you're bringing it in. That's why there is no greater force multiplying way to destroy a civilization than through irresponsible immigration policies. And that really is the lesson of 9-11. So with us today is Shell Malkin um, out with a new book, Open Borders, Inc. We're going to put it up on in show notes and on the screen here as well. So you can see where to buy it at Amazon or elsewhere in all bookstores. This is really the blueprint. Hey, Michelle, thanks for joining us from your hotel room. Thank you. I appreciate Daniel. And, and there is no better or worse day uh, that I um, am privileged to join you on on this day because we have been kindred spirits and hammering this message on the nexus between mass illegal immigration and the success of violent jihadists who lurk among a, a population of upwards of 30 million illegal aliens. And yet this critical fundamental aspect of how these 19 hijackers were able to waltz through the front door, do their business under the nose of local, state and federal authorities. I'm back in the D.C. swamp and I never miss an opportunity to remind people about that nexus and intersection that occurred um, just south of here in Fairfax County and Arlington, where Several of, of these hijackers, of course, five of them had overstayed their visas, at least five of them, 
um, but uh, communed with illegal alien day laborers who helped them secure uh, driver's licenses and, and ID at DMVs. They, they met each other at the 7-Eleven parking lot where illegal alien day laborers in these sanctuary cities are allowed to congregate openly, you know, uh, uh, violating a plethora of, of our laws. And it was that nexus that allowed them to get on the planes and drive them into the Pentagon and the Twin Towers and, and the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, the 9-11 Commission might as well have never existed. Um, as, as you mentioned in your piece today, and I, I actually mentioned in um, my column today on the questions that should be asked tomorrow uh, by the immoderate open borders moderators of these Democrat presidential candidates, do they or do they not agree with the key recommendation of the 9-11 Commission to build a fully functioning biometric entry exit system, which still does not exist today, 18 years later after the terrorist attacks? If they don't agree with that recommendation, what exactly do they propose that we do with visa overstayers? Well, we know and so that's why the platitudes of never forget, never let it happen again, ring so hollow today. And it's always a sad day, especially remembering the 3,000 people, including many children and unborn children who lost their lives and were murdered. Um, but in, in the Beltway, I, I remember people like Barbara Olson, who mm. was a champion, who understood um, you know, the need to, to defend our country and the rule of law. And it just... It tears me up inside, Daniel, when I see so many people, uh, you know, paying lip service to remembering when they have no resolve uh, and no commitment to taking the actions, the actual actions needed to prevent another September 11th. See, that, that's the thing. As I said in my opening, our response was as dyslexic as it could be. We went overseas own their dumpster fires. Now, look, we needed some sort of just bombing, but then we decide to punish ourselves, not them, by owning a 21-way tribal civil war in Afghanistan, then own Af Iraq, which then strengthened Iran, which was more of a closer problem. We now know it's all where the money is. They funded a lot of it. We know this from the disclosure and a lot of the trials. And then we feel guilty See, we're supposed to be over there so they don't come here, but then we feel guilty about it. So then we bring in, I counted 188,000 um, green cards from Iraq, 130 or so thousand from Afghanistan. We've had a number of these SIVs and refugees from Iraq caught on terrorism charges. Here's what I can't wrap my arms around. I think a lot of us could not have pictured the world 18 years later. But if you would have told me back then that we would double our immigration from these countries, we would bring in roughly 2.2 million uh, green cards from predominantly Muslim countries, about 175,000 a year, plus 150,000 foreign students, about 70,000 a year on the King Abdullah scholarship from Saudi Arabia. And it's not even the discussion. And here's the deal with Pearl Harbor it was the Japanese military that attacked us. So it was a military response. Here, we let in people who shouldn't have been here working within networks in America, Muslim Brotherhood networks, and we're all lucky um, that we should have busted up. And we're like, Afghanistan. That's a loss two decades. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and then, of course, 
the ultimate perversion of lessons learned is not simply to forget the lessons you should have learned, but then to turn them completely on their head. Did you see, we haven't talked about this, but did you see the piece in the Washington Post from all these military leaders uh, opposing the Trump plan floating, uh, you know, perhaps what we should have done. I mean, I'm not dumb. But now, now they're saying perhaps we should get as close to zero on the refugee numbers as we can, perhaps, right? It's so frustrating. It's like, just do it, just do it. But no, we have military leaders telling us that it is a threat to our military and national security if we don't jack up the numbers <laughs> and keep them as high under the Obama administration, when, as you say, Many of these translators that they're telling us are so fundamental to our safety are being imported to our country to plot jihad and stabbings and build bombs here on American soil to kill American people. Okay, Michelle, let's get to the 800-pound gorilla in the room. There's no PC when we're when we're talking to each other. So let's just let's just go the non-PC route. Even (laughs) those of our friends that are willing to broach this issue, they use the word vetting all the time. But here's what they don't understand. Here's what I'm not understanding why we can't talk about this. So if you bring in small numbers over a gradual period of time and you don't have subversion Muslim Brotherhood organizations, you have more of Zudi Jasser types that are considered Muslim leaders in the country, you could hope that they'll assimilate and we won't have any problems. But if you bring in several million and they cluster in these neighborhoods. We have, as I write in my piece, we have in the Somali community in Minneapolis, where um, the U.S. attorney from Minnesota, as well as a Democrat-appointed judge, they said that the tentacles are spread wide in the community. There's a terror recruiting problem. It's pervasive. So it's not just a number of people that are going to go kinetic on you, that are going to be the kinetic bombers. But there's rings around them of friends and family, not always, but often, that support that mentality, that foster it. It's in the education system, in their schools, it's in the mosques. And we have a situation where DOJ, I'm looking here, DOJ and DHS put out a report in 2018. Jeff Sessions uh, really spearheaded this, that 74% of those charged with terrorism since 9-11 until 2016 were confirmed foreign nationals. And among the remaining ones, a lot of them they couldn't confirm, which usually means that they're not citizens. And then I think you and I both know a lot of the citizens fairly recently, Hart Seller kind of did us in. Yeah. Isn't 9-11 more about Hart Seller? Yes. I mean. Yes. Absolutely. That's what it's what that's what it's about. But you're not allowed to say that. And, you know, a lot of Open Borders Inc. is about exactly that. The the inability for us to properly diagnose the source of the problem in the first place, because, of course, uh, our concerns are always rooted in hatred and Islamophobia. Yeah. So I want to get to that in your book, because, you know, that that's the thing. It's not it's not our fault. We don't hate anyone. I mean, like, don't shoot the messenger. If anything, I actually, with this increasing secularization in this country, I would relish the opportunity to have more religious people in the country, even though it's not my religion. They pray to God. I'm fine with that. The problem is, as history has shown, what comes along with that is a substantial group that when mixed with the Muslim Brotherhood networks already here, which, by the way, we didn't learn the lessons of, as I noted in my intro, is already um, Rabbi Mayor Kahana's death. His shooting in 1990 was the first Al-Qaeda attack. 
that same cell was very much involved in the World Trade Center bombing bombing in 93, um, as well as the embassy bombing. One one figure I mentioned whose family is in Texas to this day, he was involved in both. He was the mastermind behind the embassy bombings. And yet what I don't understand is this. I want you to start with what is this? Chapter three of your book. Um. Unholy Alliance, the Pope, Catholic bishops, and amnesty profiteers. But I want to add to that, it's all major religions at an establishment level. It's evangelical Protestant groups now. How do they not recognize the threat and they're, they downright fundraise for refugee resettlement? Yeah, well, and they're profiting off of it. You know, of the nine exclusive subcontractors to the federal government that uh, do the refugee resettlement, The Catholics are the big kahuna, the Conference of of Bishops, the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services, the Hebrew Aid Society. Uh, There's even an Ethiopian Christian group as well that's involved. And no uh, Muslim group uh, there. You know, (laughs) interesting that there isn't. That's what's fascinating to me. I was meant to ask you that. Why you thought, did they just understand that the optics of it would endanger the entire racket? I'll tell you why, Michelle. Here I'm looking at the famous 1991 explanatory document recovered in an FBI raid in Miami. This is the document of the Muslim Brotherhood explaining what civilization jihad is. And they basically say that the Muslim Brotherhood must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands. Yes, there you go. There you go. They're the invisible hand behind the hands that are pocketing all of the refugee resettlement racket money. And, you know, it is encouraging. And of course, Ann Corcoran has been um, at the forefront of informing people of what's going on, these criminal refugees in in everybody's backyard. I call them crimbies. and, uh, you know, sort of giving the groundwork for what she called pockets of resistance, local grassroots pockets of resistance, and um, reminding people that the law itself says that local input was supposed to be a necessary factor before uh, the redistribution of these refugees all across the country. And there's, you know, there's only, there's been limited, and you know more than I do, uh, limited attempts to challenge the in- entire scheme um, in in courts of law, you know, with Tennessee trying it, but I don't understand why this hasn't been set afire across the country. I included the 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 map um, to let people know, you know, how many cities, uh, of course, this is happening to, and this is the fundamental transfer transformation that Obama talked about in action. So, Michelle, this is what I don't understand. I'm glad you brought that up. And by the way, folks, that is chapter four of the book is on refugee resettlement, and I want you guys to understand, you know. I have written copious columns and and shows on this issue. If you want to kind of coalesce the most up-to-date data, narratives, stories, cases, a lot of you are asking me, I'm missing this data point. I get a lot of emails. Michelle's book, Open Borders, Inc., has this all there, and it's the most up-to-date. It has the whole background of this iteration of the Central American invasion that we've had the last year and a half or so. Um... But what I find amazing, Michelle, is this. <laughs> I, I feel like we've regressed. I feel like back when you were leading this fight in the 2006 amnesty, 
that really inspired me to get involved in this issue. We've had a lot of voices. We've had people calling the balls and strikes. Today, we have an administration and a president who on paper is more sympathetic and has a bigger listening ear to what conservatives are saying than anyone before. And yet, whenever we have these big leverage points, so on today is 9-11. As I said, roughly, what was it? I don't have the numbers again, 474 out of like 570 people convicted on terrorism charges since 9-11 have come here as immigrants recently, many of them refugees. Many yeah. of them refugees. That's the big thing. Let, let me just give one example. Iraq is a prima facie threat. Why? Because more than anywhere else, it's half Sunni, half Shia. They each come with a prima facie valid claim. I'm in a mixed neighborhood in Baghdad and the Sunnis are persecuting me. That might be true. They actually might be. But this guy has ties to Iranian backed Shia militias and vice versa with the Sunnis who have ties to Al Qaeda type of groups are being persecuted by, by the Sunnis. They come here. That's the bowling green cell. They bite the hand that feeds them. So we on 9-11 anniversary have this opportunity under Trump. We don't need new legislation. Um, the president has full power. Obama used that to raise the cap. Trump could set it at zero. Zero. And mind you, and mind you, Michelle, that's not a big deal because yeah. we have chain migration. We have diversity visa lottery. We have parole. We have U visa. We have yeah. the border, which is a million of them. I mean, we have <laughs> refugee time. See, this is the trick. They have 10 different programs. They're like, oh, we're no refugees. Well, no, our whole system is, is a refugee program. And even this small sliver, where are the troops? Yeah. Right, right. Well, so, you know, I guess in my naivete, you know, one of my major solutions is, and, and, you know, theories is that not enough people know about it. And part of that is, you know, we do what we do day in and day out, and we try to reach as many people as we can. But for the most part, the, the big focal centers uh, in the so-called mainstream media, whether they're left or right, don't yep. focus on this issue. They don't have a laser like focus. And they're, you know, they're they're putting out junk food instead of the <laughs> nutritional value that we are offering. Um, and if people knew all of the things that you report every day and talk about in your podcast and that I put between these two covers, perhaps they would be more motivated to actually do something about it and to demand zero um, on the refugee resettlement numbers, and also ask the same questions. Of all days, today should be the day to honor the 9-11 dead and take these actions, which have been long delayed. It is such a paradox. And I mentioned this in the introduction um, of the book, because it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to rational people that at this, um, and I just want to read from it, it may seem paradoxical at this pivotal moment in American political history, where the president in office who is more vocal than any other on fundamental issues of sovereignty and self-determination, that America first voices are being stifled, squelched, silenced. And this is the other yeah. problem, is that, you know, I always like wake up and I wonder, well, when is the, the plug going to be pulled on me? I mentioned Ann Corcoran. She had um, her Refugee Resettlement Watch blog, which was on the WordPress platform, just completely killed off, you know, just overnight. My blog is on, on WordPress. How do I know? I, I never used to have to worry, Daniel, wow. uh, that, 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 that it just might disappear like, like that at a, at a drop of a hat. And again, it's frustrating because we have a president office, in office who has paid lip service uh, to opposing the Silicon Valley overlords um, who are you know, at, the, at, the, at the basis now of the Open Borders Inc. infrastructure. 
and we're monitoring them. Well, keep watching while they shove <laughs> us all, all off of the platform. Thanks a lot. Oh, and, and that's why I wonder if, if you know, some of these conservative outlets don't want to get chopped and, uh, you know, they put out the junk food because, you know, the left isn't stupid. They know what junk food is and they know that that's not going to affect civilization. They know the steak is going to affect it and they don't want um, our people to be fed steak. And I, and I want to talk about one proof to, to what you're saying, why I know it's true. Mm-hmm. And just so our listeners know, um, and we're going to put this up on the screen here, that Michelle is holding a rally I hope to be able to go to in Montgomery County, Maryland, Rockville, Maryland, the belly of the beast of the big sanctuary um, to protest the sanctuary status. And I will tell you, folks, a little bit of sunlight, a good ABC reporter, some of us piled on, and they are shaking in their boots now. The, the Democrat Party cannot lose in that county. It's a one party county. But still, this is such a toxic issue. They're saying, oh, we're getting death threats. This is terrible. When people actually know about it. And I don't know if I'm supposed to report this, but I'll say it anyway. Today, they are sitting down with ICE very quietly. I don't know what will come of it. Imagine if we did this times 100. Yes, exactly. Well, You inspired me with the piece that you wrote after the American flag came down at the Aurora Ice facility. And, you know, it took two months before somebody finally did something. And I did it on Labor Day because that's the day when most people are off. And I did not want to have the excuse of a lot of conservatives that, well, we have the day off. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, they say, well, we can't do it on any other day because we're working on like the Soros people. And 200 people showed up. All it takes is, you know, 200 to spark a movement to have 400 or 600 or a thousand. And a lot of times it does take external pressure. And, you know, from what I understand, a lot of the groups that were working inside Montgomery County have been wanting to do something like this. And so, you know, maybe it's just sort of a providential intersections of of, you know, these winds all all coming together um, for Friday. And so. Great. I'm I'm glad uh, to hear that, Daniel, that, uh, you know, they've now been shamed into um, talking to the people that they, they think are, are the ones causing problems in their county in the first place. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is what I don't understand, that the, the Democrats cannot survive sustained, trained fire on this issue. They cannot because it's 100 percent indefensible. You are taking known criminals of other countries that could easily be removed and you never have to deal with the recidivism that we always have to deal with from all criminals. And every crime is avoidable. And and we know it's not just, you know, any group of people. There is a particular uh, proclivity for drunk driving, certainly drug trafficking and child sex offenses. Um, They could kick and scream all they want, but the, the narratives will always be there. The, the data will be there, although it's not published, but certainly the arrests are going to be there. If every Republican in their respective states and districts would bang on these cases as much as the Democrats banged on mass shootings in pursuit of gun control, we'd have a different country. But I, I don't see, except for the USCIS director, Ken Cuccinelli, I don't see anyone in the admin or in Congress really doing this. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, we need some sort of political Ritalin to inject into the Beltway Swamp um, drinking sources to get people to focus. 
And again, it's that cognitive dissonance. I mean, everybody's wearing their 9-11 ribbon today, right? And and going to, to a ceremony. And then they turn around and, and I wrote a column um, 16 years ago called Spitting on Their Graves um, mm. to talk about the hollowness uh, that has pervaded um, pretty much every September 11th commemoration um, in the political culture. And we can change that calculus. And I think that public shows of support for ICE are part of that. Um, you know, I turned my book tour in, into a book tour aiming specifically at yes. sanctuary cities, counties, and states to try and galvanize people. And if all they need is a, you know, some more information and a, a little shove in the right direction, um, you know, I hope that I'm, I'm, you know, that that lever is going to, to, to help them activate that. So, and, you know, there's strength in numbers and, and, you know, I, I just, I wholeheartedly support everything that you are doing. I mean, single-handedly, um, your heroic efforts to inform people. And a lot of the book really is just a megaphone to, to bring the work that you've done and so many investigative bloggers and uh, a lot of the good people that are here in, in DC that put out the numbers and reports that won't make it onto yeah. Fox News Channel or MSNBC or, or CNN, for that matter, all of them. Um, and I pay homage and tribute to all of you um, because, again, I just think the synergy of, of what we're doing is how we're going to reach that tipping point. And I think that's the difference with other books. The book is the end to itself. Oh, I want to take a selfie in front of the carcass of America. That's really what the conservative movement has become. This is really a call to action. And, um, you know, part of that call to action that I think is so important is explaining how we got here. And, and, and this is one of the two big questions that you deal with in the book. And I got my big binder here from your publisher. I have the book in the mail coming, so I still got to flip through this. Um, it's just getting stuck here in the binder. Um, but, you know, you have chapters dealing with the, the, the money sources, the organizations. What a lot of people are puzzled about is this. What, what's going on defies logic, meaning even if you account for liberalism. So, you know, you have different, you've always had politicking and favored special interests within Americans. Okay. This industry is favored, this race, this group of people. But the notion that our government would care a hundred times more about foreign invaders than all Americans, right, left, any race, any anything, would defy logic. And indeed, just in my young career, small time doing this, the shift is unbelievable. We talk about the 9-11 Commission. None of us viewed people like Jamie Gorelick as even moderate Democrats, right? They would have been viewed at the time not as a Southern bull weevil, but as a liberal Democrat. But then we talk about Harry Reid in the 90s, Barbara Jordan. They, they, they wanted socialism, but not for the rest of the world. They didn't want to destroy their civilization. And yet now we can't even get people who are regarded as conservatives to stand for 80-20 issues in any sustained way. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, is is that something for the field of political science and history? Or is that psychology? Is there some sort of psychological condition that has turned all of these people who have sworn oaths of office to protect and defend the Constitution and its laws um, to 
uh, elevate uh, foreign interests above, you know, our own national interests. I don't get it. And just a, a small example of this, you know, that Federal Reserve program that I report on, and it has been known, Judicial Watch has been litigating uh, to try and get information about it for years. But um, the Directo a Mexico program, which is basically the Federal Reserve's attempt to cut into the billion dollar remittance business, banking on illegals. The, the idea that we have the Federal Reserve running recruitment programs for illegal alien financial customers, throwing parties for them and having, you know, basically like festivals and balloons and carnival games for the children of illegal aliens so they can sign them up for Directo a Mexico, which still exists. I mean, this is just, it is mind boggling beyond belief that, that these suicidal tendencies, civilizational suicidal tendencies are, are, are not just like a bug, it's a feature of American life. And that's where I really think the left turned the corner. They always had the cultural institutions, academia, the media, but when they got big business on board, and it's true of a lot of their cultural Marxist issues, but certainly with immigration, that's really where they embedded everywhere because they, they seem to have money to litigate every last illegal in every state, every time anything our side wants to do, they immediately have a lawsuit. Yet our side, we don't have all the resources put together to, to have one sustained fight. So where, where do they, how are they so quickly able to get these caravans together and then concurrently the legal jihad in order to sustain that? Yeah, so I list, you know, the dozens and dozens of organizations that I um, call the members of the illegal alien lawyers lobby. And you are well familiar, um, not only with the ACLUs of, of the world, but the Center for Constitutional Rights, the Center for Popular Democracy. Um, and uh, of course, largely it's because every single law school in America is on alert. They're like on call, like emergency room doctors. Um, to provide the know your rights clinics, to file briefs at the drop of a hat, um, your al Acholados that are right there at the border working binationally. Um, and then they're plugged right into the open borders reporters who regurgitate their briefs as news um, and all of the Hollywood types that are raising money for them. I mean, the, the Young Center at the University of Chicago, funded by the Tides Foundation alone, um, has defended God knows how many unaccompanied minors in, in court, while, as you have so trenchantly pointed out, American citizens can't even get standing in their own courts to sue illegal aliens and the cities that uh, harbor and enable them. But what is, okay, so, so that's the money. I want to go on to the psychology a little bit. And, and with yeah. that, talk about your your chapter with the unholy alliance with the Catholic church and others. What, what's starting to bother me is that we don't have an intellectual conservative movement anymore. We don't have a moral conservative movement anymore. The left is the only side that speaks to the morality of their immorality. And our side seems very confused. You have groups and, and, and people that are even considered conservative evangelical leaders on, on other issues that somehow I guess George Soros is a very moral person. I mean, he seems to be right. They keep saying, so 
every time cartels shoot at our agents, they get in horrible people, endless child sex offenders. Oh, and he was previously uh, deported. Well, that means he came back in. That means that is a humanitarian crisis. We got to stop that. But no, there's no sense of urgency. But the minute something happens for other people, I spoke about this a lot on yesterday's show. We're seeing it now with the Bahamas. Whatever happens anywhere in the world, any place, anytime, poverty, war, um, you know, it, it could be natural disasters, whatever it is, the answer is always mass migration, and it's always to the U.S. And what I never understood is, I think I'm a pretty religious person. I mean, it, it is a very important part of my life, and charity is an important part of my life. I give 10%, I tithe. And we always, there's a Jewish saying that charity starts in the home and you can't screw your kids and your wife um, just saving the world. You know, that has to be prudently done in a balanced way in addition to it. But this by a factor of a hundred, they are not our, they are not our parents. They are our servants. The assets of the United States government do not belong to them to give away. That is not moral very few people seem to understand this anymore. Yeah, it, it's a great point, Daniel, and I puzzle about it as well. And I recall that there was a, a column that Maureen Dowd wrote about during the Bush years when Code Pink was really first coming to the fore. And you'll recall this phrase. And she talked about how uh, Cindy Sheehan, who had been elevated by the media, by the Soros network as uh, you know, this shining voice and and really the the unhinged left, the, the answer um, coalition of the world. And Maureen Dowd claimed on Cindy Sheehan's behalf, quote unquote, absolute moral authority. And so conferring upon this mother who had, you know, just the, the worst kind of, of Bush hatred and anti-American hatred, um, absolute moral authority. And ever since then, of course, the only mothers who get the absolute moral authority card are mothers who do, um, you know, furtherance of the cultural Marxist agenda, the open borders agenda. And this is why angel moms will never be able to take the right. stage and ab absorb uh, all of the adulation and, and respect uh, that the Cindy Sheehan's and the Jersey moms um, and every last illegal alien mother uh, uh, of a child who's who's uh, photographed by um, Getty Images, uh, open borders propagandist John Moore. Um, and so, you know, even those who want to assert um, the the just moral authority that we do have are drowned out. And 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 that's it. That's a, a concerted, orchestrated effort that um, the left and, and Soros and, you know, the, the U.S. Chamber of, of Commerce, for that matter, um, have all helped with Koch brothers, Libre, Libre initiative. That's what we're up against. Our, our own side. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. I, I, you know, Soros and Koch's, I think if nothing else demonstrates the unibrow, uh, <laughs> you know, that's what it is um, I, that, you know, we have this fake fight, but the reality is, I mean, if you look at the key issues, they've really, uh, delivered for the left and, yeah. um, we're left without a voice. We're running out of time here. I want to get to chapter five, the A-team, Abolish Ice, Antifa, and Sanctuary Anarchists. Um, how did they start to go kinetic, where they downright move from just the advocacy in, in the lawsuits 
and elsewhere to downright having street thugs interfering with ICE enforcement. And, and we have seen several times already where ICE, despite their denials, seem to have backed off from the rule of law because of protesters. That's very scary. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, they used to be sort of concentric circles that didn't intersect, right? And among the 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 known anarchist groups, um, at least that I've dealt with since I um, started covering them in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, a lot of them are rooted in environmental radicalism and violence. And so, you know, when you look at, at Seattle and Portland, they sort of just you know, hopped on whatever the, the popular horse of the moment was. So for a while it was, you know, the WTO um, riot. So you went from um, people who would be firebombing clinics uh, over environmental issues to throwing bricks through windows at Nike to protest um, globalization. And then the Occupy movement, I think, provided the foot soldiers of Antifa mm -hmm. and really the intersection of um, Occupy and Abolish ICE um, coalesced in Portland. So in Portland and then New York, you had the DSA thrown into it. And then you had more of the mainstream of the fringe Soros groups start to target administration officials and show up at, at people's houses and, and restaurants. And um, now, of course, you've got shots being fired in San Antonio, Molotov cocktails being thrown into CIS offices in, in Florida. And that's all going to be ramping up between now and Election Day. And again, I think it was really the impetus for me to say to practice what I preach. And it was it was that chapter and your call to arms that motivated me mm -hmm. to um, try and be the catalyst for people to show up on the street so there wasn't a vacuum anymore. We've got to be the men and women in the arena. Exactly. Do you think DOJ and DHS under this administration has done enough to combat sanctuary cities? See my face. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think it's whatever the, the lack of will is or ADD coupled with, as you say, the lack of focus um, on the Capitol Hill side that has resulted in the same kind of paralysis that has yeah. led to people's death and, and suffering over the last 25 plus years. I mean, again, a lot of empty threats and monitoring. Where are we with the lawsuits? Where are we with the defunding? If they're not going to be criminal prosecutions of, of these outlaws, then, as you say, and I, as I have said many times over, we are not a sovereign nation anymore. This is a sanctuary nation. Th that's sure. what I understand. When it comes to any other issue, states are are, are like doormats. Okay, there's no, they they can't do nothing. They can't define marriage. They can't regulate the granular details of the accreditation for abortion clinics. But when it comes to something that Madison said and Roger Sherman said at its foundation is one of the key reasons why we went from the Articles of Confederation to a federal union. So you don't screw the sovereignty of the whole union. So you don't have some states bringing in people because people aren't goods and services. They will affect everyone and the core of the nation. You can't have that somehow. I don't know. They won't cooperate. I, I, I mean, and, and these are well-intentioned people I speak to in ICE. I'm like, dude, you're the feds. Whatever happened to that? Yeah, it's that same self-defeating suicidal tendency. Um, 
And I wish there was a, a, a pill to take to <laughs> inoculate us against uh, against it. I mean, it's going to be the death of us. <sighs> and I will not, be. Yeah. And I did not mean to end on a pessimistic note, Daniel, but it's hard not to. So, so just just real quick to end this off. Last chapter, Border Defenders Action Plan. Everyone asked me, what do we do? What do we do? How do we build a movement? And could you answer together with that? A little long term, because I think part of our problem is that so the advent of social media has made our side not think past 10 seconds. Um, what does a post-Trump world look like? Meaning, where do you see this the next number of years? Not everything is about Trump. Love him, hate him in between. We need a movement. Yes, we do. And we have talked about this. And um, and I I am not a political organizer. And so, you know, I'm doing what I can where I can to use my platform to inform people, to educate people and push them in the right direction, um, I hope. And, you know, I mean, there's this is a long answer, even though we have a couple of minutes left. But I talk about the brainwashing that begins very early on, you know, from preschool and kindergarten, K through 12 in the public schools. And when you have kids who are fed a diet of Howard Zinn and teaching tolerance curriculum uh, from the Southern Poverty Law Center, it's going to be extremely hard to get them to undo all of that and then to motivate them to do what we want them to do, which is be out on the front lines to save our country. Um, and when you live in this, you know, French fry world, it's extremely frustrating because people under, uh, are under the delusion that they're getting the truth from, you know, the right uh, sources on, on, on cable TV. Um, uh, but <laughs> yeah, that's another book. Um, but, you know, I do have this plan. And I think that if you start out small and feel like um, that you are doing everything you can to divest from Open Borders, Inc. and to defund it where you can, then that will give you a sense of emboldenment and, and empowerment that you can do much more. Um, and, you know, I haven't even started to talk about, you know, the, the work that you've done on, on getting people to understand the role of, of these judicial tyrants. Um, but at least we can build up to that point where people start to feel like they can hold um, elected officials accountable, the district attorneys and the police chiefs, and try to undo the hijacking of all of these civic and public institutions. Yes. And, and sometimes you got to take things bite-sized. And, and I think we don't have a movement on anything. OK, I mean, I thought guns was the one issue that for two decades, you know, we were kind of universal. Any run-of-the-mill Republican was good on that. That's gone. Um, healthcare, that's very complicated. No one understands what free market healthcare looks like. Right. But this, other countries' criminals, could we start from that? Right. The sanctuary issue, it's not even the rest of the immigration issue. It's literally people arrested, usually for really bad stuff. Um, it, it's an 80-20 issue, should be 100-0, but the education system has taken its toll, so it's 80-20, but still it's winnable. I think that's the issue. That's where your rally's taking place. Rockville, we're going to put it up on the screen. Please turn out. I'm going to try to go there. We certainly will have a presence, either me or Nate, at Conservative Review. Um, Michelle, if you don't come back, I'm going to sick my audience on you and send you emails. We got to continue this, all right? Just for you, Daniel, only for you. God bless you. Really appreciate it. Well, folks, that was Michelle Malkin, who, like I said, does not need an intro author of Open Borders, Inc. Come on, folks, wasn't that terrific? Um, she's one of the few people in this industry I still respect. 
that is focused like a laser beam. Um, you know, I'm a big talker behind this uh, microphone, but she's going out in the streets. And let me tell you, it's not easy. She's going to Portland, going to places in Colorado with a lot of liberal loons. That's where she's from. And then now she's going to be in the D.C. area, Montgomery County. You got a lot of Antifa there and uh, they do physically assault people. So if you could turn out, that would be great. Um, still up in there just with a family schedule. If I could turn out for Friday, um, make that trip down I-95. Um, but look, just to tie this together. Everything starts with your homeland. 9-11 was all about the homeland, the border. And when I say the border, I don't just mean the physical southern border or northern border. I mean our visa system, our immigration system. It's the networks we have in America. I can't fix what goes on in, in Afghanistan. The analogy would be is if you had a viper's nest in a cave 10 miles from your home, full of snakes, scorpions, boa constrictors, all sorts of things. And we made a mistake and we brought in a few boas to our home. And we're like, damn it. And then we got to take care of this. And then we go 10 miles away and stick our neck into that hole and deal and try to deal with that rather than just don't bring the boas here. Similar analogy. I live just outside of Baltimore, Maryland. You guys know what downtown Baltimore is like. I, I can't solve that. The Bloods, the Crips, the gang fights. First and foremost, I need to secure my home, my community in the suburbs and make sure it doesn't spill over. That's easier to do. What we have done to take that analogy to its logical conclusion over the last 18 years is to go to downtown Baltimore, referee the Bloods and Crips and hang up signs, hey, come here and bring them, bring them to your home. It doesn't mean that we don't need to have a strong foreign policy. Leave our naval and air force assets in place to strike and maneuver from position of strength with a clearly defined mission as needed. But to get our infantry entangled in stuff that just harms them, it degrades our, our, our capabilities. It's a whole other issue that we've spent 18 years fighting what should be an immigration slash terror finance slash soft power issue with kinetic military action, there's a lot of questions. Could we confront China with the military we have today? That's a whole nother show. Maybe we'll get Colonel Dan Steiner back on the show to talk about that. 9-11 is so important, but we got to take the right lessons about it. You can't respond in the wrong way and then, and then miss the main issue. The bottom line is we need the resolve that the people on Flight 93 had. They recognize the threat. They recognize what they're going to do. And they took action with the enduring words of Todd Beamer, let's roll. It's time for us to formulate an action plan to finally rid ourselves of this cancer of Sharia, of Sharia supremacism, of hate. We're not the ones who hate anyone. We want all people to come and secure the blessings of liberty and republicanism. But we can't be naive to what's out there in the Middle East. And we can't continue importing this irresponsibly without a plan to properly vet, to properly deal with the people radicalizing them on our own shores. It's time for that plan. Let's roll. Let's never forget the memory of those who died, the brave actions of the first responders, firefighters, police officers on that day, the sacrifice of our military, however 
ill-advised some of the political uh, calculations were and the decisions that were made. They need guidance. Let's pray to God that he gives us all guidance to do what's right, to do what's prudent, and to ultimately keep our people safe. Till tomorrow, God bless you. Thanks for listening.